Brian Koberger doesn't like people looking at him. Let me give you an example of the castle doctrine, a new definition of a porch pirate, and then our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Leave me a comment below and hit that little bell so that you receive notifications. And remember, you can check us out on any of your favorite podcasting apps as well. All right, let's get to the docket. But before we do, yes, it was a busy week last week. We only did, I guess, what, one show last week? No, maybe it was two, wasn't it? I guess it was two because... Nope, it was one last week. Yep, one show last week uh, because we were in trial. And yes, this week we're back at the same kind of schedule, even though we're not in trial. Because federal judges just set stuff on your docket and uh, boom, there you go. They completely wipe out your week just like that. Anyway, we're going to do our best to make sure we get at least four shows guaranteed this week. All right. So let's go ahead and open the docket for August 28th of 2023. And the first thing we have to deal with is Brian Koberger. Yes, Brian Koberger apparently doesn't like people staring at him. And that's what his attorneys are asking the court to do. They, his attorneys, they, Mr. Koberger's attorneys, don't want the trial to be televised. So the, the uh, defense attorneys for Mr. Koberger filed a motion and the issue is, is whether Mr. Koberger uh, faces deprivation of his rights under the 14th Amendment to due process by the continued televising and broadcasting of his trial. Now, they cite to a case going back to 1965, the Estes v. State of Texas case, for that particular proposition. Now, the... Uh, Attorneys cite in their motion that recent press behavior in the courtroom clearly demonstrates that such is the case. So nearly two months ago, on June 27th, the court warned press observers not to focus strictly on Mr. Koberger and show a wide shot of the courtroom if they wish to continue filming the court proceedings. So the judge presiding over the Brian Koberger case warned the media at the hearing back on June 27th, not to, um, you know, do close-ups of Mr. Koberger. And so the press said, sure. Well, apparently, according to the defense attorneys, press observers have thus far failed to comply with the court's direction as the continued publication of such images. And this is what they put in their motion. You can take a look at these motions. Do you think it's too focused on Brian Koberger? Are you wondering, whoa, look at those beady little eyes. He must be innocent or guilty. No, that's what happens. I'll talk about that in a minute. Let's read on. So these photos, the uh, defense argues, is a blatant violation of the court's orders uh, to cease focusing exclusively on Mr. Koberger in their own right and are also some other articles that are sensationalizing and uh, with very prejudicial headlines in the content the right most of the three photos that they cite in their motion uh, goes back to the Daily Beast article. Report says Koberger creepiness with women goes back to high school. The defense says, hey, the cameras continued exclusively focused on Mr. Koberger provides fodder 
for observers and purported analysts on social media who are not bound by the notions of journalistic integrity and who have potentially an even greater reach than traditional media outlets. I wonder if they're talking about us. Anyway, the proliferation of these images and videos is plainly observable on social media platforms such as TikTok and X in post. As the press notes in the court's June 27th admonition, the court referenced the recent Chad Daybell trial when cameras were asked to leave because they focused too much on the defendant. Indeed, such a parallel was drawn in the defense prior memorandum on cameras during that hearing, yet camera-wielding courtroom observers remained undeterred. The chief function of our judicial machinery is to ascertain the truth. The use of television, however, cannot be said to contribute materially to this objective. Rather, its use amounts to the injection of an irrelevant factor into the court proceedings. Once again, citing to that Supreme Court case, Estes. His attorneys continue, the circumstances present in Mr. Koberger's case are singular and pose an extraordinary risk of prejudice beyond even that posed in Estes. Observers' continued failure to comply with the court's directive compounds this problem and results in the potential jury pool's constant inundation with conclusory accusations and sensationalistic nonsense guised as factual reporting analysis. Wherein is an Estes, the attendant risk of prejudice was limited to potential jurors watching of television or reading of print media. Now the risk follows the potential jury pool whenever they go, viewable on their smartphones and constantly updated by thousands of unchecked sources. Now each juror carries with him into the jury box these solemn facts and thus increases the chance of prejudice that is present in every criminal case. It is not only possible, but highly probable that it will have a direct bearing on his vote as to guilt or innocence. The images provided above in their previous, uh, in their brief, state that during pretrial court proceedings, but pose no less danger. To the contrary, they gradually poison the potential jury pool prior to the trial even occurring, whittling the number of jurors able to render a just and unbiased verdict. To the extent that television shapes sentiment, it can strip the accused of a fair trial. And they say, hey, that Estes court back in the 60s itself noted that unrestricted television coverage can be corrosive to the non-trial proceedings and preemptively limit the potential for an eventual fair verdict. The inevitable close-up of the gestures and expressions during the ordeal of this trial might well transgress his personal sensibilities, his dignity, and his ability to concentrate on the proceedings before him. Sometimes the difference between life and death, they argue, dispassionately, freely, and without the distraction of the wide public surveillance. A defendant on trial for a specific crime is entitled to his day in court, not a stadium or a city of nationwide arenas. Similarly, Mr. Koberger is entitled to defend himself against capital criminal charges without cameras focusing on his every move. In addition to the inordinate and exclusive focus on Mr. Koberger, courtroom observers have routinely violated this order going back to May 16th, providing a part that no video or still photograph shall be taken of any papers, documents, or notes which may be located on or around the council table or used by counsel. That was in the 
general order governing courtroom procedure and conduct. This noncompliance is clearly demonstrated in the below provided photos taken during the most recent hearing and has continuously undermined the court's stated interest in maintaining order and an environment that permits all participants to focus on their responsibilities without undue distractions. Now, aware of the constant attention paid to counsel table and the risk that confidential and sensitive information could be scrutinized, photographed, and even published, defense counsel has been cautious. This exact conduct was found by the Estes Court to be of circumstances priving the petitioner of a fair trial. In Estes, the petitioner was subject to characterizations and minute electronic scrutiny to such an extent that one point the photographers were found attempting to picture the page of the paper from which he was reading while sitting at counsel table. Whereas in Estes, this conduct was characterized as a singular and extreme occurrence, in the present case, it has become disruptively routine and must be abated if Mr. Koberger is to receive effective representation. All right, let's respond to this motion, okay? Get over it. Um, gee, you don't want the potential jurors looking at your client. Well, guess what? The greatest disinfectant of all evil is sunlight. Sunlight. If you think there's something wrong, bring it out. Let's see it in open court. Oh, we don't want the, the potential jurors hearing about this case. Listen, I think we saw from the DeBell case, you know, the old joke I had a law professor say, 12 people good and true, referring to jurors, otherwise unemployable. That used to be kind of the joke. Okay, I have no problem with jurors. Jurors get it right 99% of the time. We need jurors. But I think we saw in the DeBell case, yes, you're going to find people that have never heard of that case. They will find people in Idaho that have not heard of the Koberger case. So get over it, okay? And guess what? Maybe you should file a motion, their defense attorneys, to say, we don't want the jury looking at our client. Let me assure you, the jurors are looking at your client. If your client has some weird tick or mannerism that you don't like, better find out about it now and change that before you get to the people that really matters, the 12 people. Just go try your case, okay? I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'm a big advocate for cameras in the courtroom. I think they should be in every courtroom, in every jurisdiction. You should be able to go to a link and see what's going on in that court's house today. It is open to the public. We are not back in a courtroom in 1860 where, you know, we waited for the word from the newspaper. It's instantaneous these days. So people need to get used to it and get used to the change. Just try your case. And my experience is when the cameras are in the courtroom, you get better lawyering. So quit worrying about what everybody else is watching. Try your case and let's move forward. I just, come on. Get over it. I get it. You're trying to do what you think is best for your client. I get it. But if your client is as innocent as he professes and you profess that he isn't, I get it. I'm a defense attorney. I get it. Go let the world see the evidence or the lack thereof so that they can make up their mind themselves. Oh, and by the way, the prosecution needs a little more time to respond to the uh, motion to dismiss. As you may recall, the 
defense filed a motion to dismiss the indictment, basically saying the whole thing was a complete mess. And of course, we don't know exactly what the whole thing is, a big complete mess, because that motion is filed under seal. Now, you would think, as a defense attorney, if you had the smoking gun that the prosecutor had screwed it up, I would not file that motion under seal. I would file that motion for the world to see and say, look how bad those guys screwed it up. So just saying, you can't have your cake and eat it too. And I think that motion is not going to fly because basically they said the prosecution didn't comply with the rules of evidence at the grand jury proceedings. Newsflash, rules of evidence don't apply at a grand jury proceeding. Just just saying. And I know they know that, but that's really what they were saying. All right, next on the docket, let me give you an example of the Castle Doctrine. So a University of South Carolina student was fatally shot early Saturday after he tried to enter the wrong home on his own street. This is according to the Columbia Police Department. The latest case in which someone in the United States was shot after apparently approaching the wrong home. So Nicholas Anthony Donofrio, he's 20, lived in Connecticut, was killed, according to police, um, and they're citing the uh, coroner's report, and the university confirmed Donofrio was a sophomore at the school. Now, police initially responded to a report of a home burglary around 2 a.m. Saturday morning. The incident was upgraded to a shots fired call as police officers headed uh, to the house in uh, Columbia, South Carolina, which is about two miles from campus. What did the officers find? Well, they found Mr. Donofrio dead on the um, home's front porch with a gunshot wound to the upper body. Now, preliminary information indicates that Donofrio, who resides on South Holly Street, attempted to enter the wrong home when he was fatally shot. Police have not released any information about who shot Donofrio, adding they would consult prosecutors um, as to see how they should continue the investigation. Now, this case is uh, one in which the uh, victim appears to have gone to the wrong place at the wrong time in a nation with more guns than people. A Missouri teen was shot in the head in April after ringing the doorbell, and a woman days later was shot and killed in upstate New York after she and her friends pulled into the wrong driveway en route to a party. Now, those other cases don't really fit the definition of the Castle Doctrine, but the one in South Carolina does. Yes, now consult your local law, consult a local lawyer. But as I always say, call the police first. And I get it, but I've said this before, guns complicate everything, okay? And I love guns, I do. But I'm just saying, they complicate everything. Should the person regarding the death of Mr. Donofrio be charged? Well, probably not. Um, the homeowner believed that somebody was trying to break into his home and uh, threatened his life. And in South Carolina, as I understand the law there, like most states that have the castle doctrine, well, you can shoot first and ask questions later. Now, personally, if I was consulting the, uh, with the uh, homeowner, I would have said, don't fire until the door opens. Once they cross that plane, then you're home free. When you're shooting from behind the door, it's gonna get a lot more complicated. Maybe they were gonna go away. Maybe they truly were lost and, and opened it. Now we had a case here not long ago. It was a young lady up in Boulder, Colorado. 
very similar thing. You know, starting to notice a trend, drunk college kids going into the wrong house. Well, the case in Boulder, she went in, homeowner shot her in the hip. She was charged with trespassing. Homeowner got a complete pass. That's the law here in Colorado. It's very similar. So just as general rule of thumb, not that I'm telling you to shoot anybody, but wait till they cross the plane. Next on the docket, a new definition for a porch pirate. A Georgia man is accused of being a porch pirate literally because he stole a porch from a neighbor's front yard. Robin Swanger is facing a felony charge. And although the property from which the porch was stolen has the appearance of being abandoned, the owner says the stuff on it was not up for grabs. For one thing, there were no trespassing signs up, and investigators say that Swanger blew past them when he helped himself to a wooden porch left on the property when the home was taken away, obviously of the mobile type. It's a full 8-foot by 10-foot porch. It would be what goes onto a house for entry and exit, said the investigators. Now, the uh, porch pirate is a term usually referring to a suspect accused of stealing packages from somebody's doorsteps, but this has taken it to a whole new level. Investigators dubbed Swanger a literal porch pirate for the theft, which has earned him a felony charge. Now, the deputies say that um, they had been on the lookout for Swanger for several days and say that they were called to the house for a domestic disturbance, perhaps a dispute over where did you get those steps from? Where'd you get that front porch from? <laughs> they gave it to me. I swear to gosh, they gave it to me. Anyway, at the time of his arrest, investigators also charged Mr. Swanger with two counts of domestic violence, including battery. You just can't take people's porches, and apparently you just can't beat up your domestic partners anymore. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's it's, it's crime. You can't do that. And we've said before, don't ever, ever, ever hit a woman. Seriously, come on. Did your mother teach you better than that? I know they did. Finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Pennsylvania police have filed criminal charges against a woman who was unable to take her dog on a flight. Well, then she abandoned the little pup at the Pittsburgh airport before boarding a plane to Mexico to go on vacation. Now, who is this alleged dog abuser? Please meet Allison Lynn Gazer, a nurse. She's facing cruelty to animal charges, neglect of animals, and animal abandonment counts. Now, this all took place back on August 4th at the Pittsburgh International Airport. Let's hope that she treats her patients better than she does her animals. Now, according to investigators, an unattended French bulldog was discovered sitting in a stroller next to some short-term parking lot spaces, and the seven-year-old dog was unrestrained and could have exited the stroller had he wanted to. A subsequent uh, investigation determined that Gazer, bound for Mexico, attempted to bring the dog on her flight. Everybody knows you're not going to take a dog to Mexico? Quarantine? All that stuff? Really? Anyway, however, an airline employee told Gazer she could not travel with the animal since the dog did not meet the criteria for an emotional support animal and did not have a proper kennel as required. Well, police allege that upon her return from vacation on August 10th, 
Gazer freely admitted she left the dog behind because the airline denied her that dog boarding pass. Gazer showed police a text message in which she asked her mother to call the airport and tell them to take the dog to the local pound and she would get him when they got back. Now remember, Miss Gazer is a nurse of some responsibility in life and she's 44 years old. Hmm, this is why she's our dumb criminal. Well, in response, Gazer's mother warned her in that text that, um, quote, you will be arrested for dog abandonment, adding, you are not above the law, end quote. Gazer's mother, Karen Johnson, told police she was concerned for her daughter's welfare due to some recent unusual behaviors, referring to the abandoned animal and her grand doggy. Apparently, Johnson said she first learned that the dog had been left behind when Gazer's ex-husband shared a news story a day after the pet was left behind. Now, Gazer, who lives in Kiddington, a borough about 35 miles outside of Pittsburgh, well, let's just say she's been charged in in, um, made custody. Uh, Police found the uh, Facebook photos with her and the French dog to link the two. The dog is doing well, although I'm sure he's probably got some abandonment and some anxiety issues and is still in foster care. The Allegheny uh, Police Department made uh, a statement, and like I said, she's been charged with uh, animal abandonment. Really, a 44-year-old woman taking a dog to the airport, thinking, I'll, get, I'll just take it to Mexico as an emotional support animal, and then abandons the dog? I mean, the irony of it all. Anyway, that's all we have for you today. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.